0: you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
1: So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins, And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Richard Sauri is a wildlife conservationist professional. He's been in the wildlife conservation game pretty much his whole life. Uh, 30 years, 35 years. Um, our paths crossed probably about 20 years ago when we were both uh, in the Skukuza area of Kruger National Park. What you hear from Richard is that he is pro-wildlife. End of story. He wants to use every available tool in the toolbox to protect wildlife. He's not pro-hunting. He's not anti-hunting. He's not pro-ecotourism. He's not anti-ecotourism. He is pro-wildlife conservation. because of that fact he wants to look at everything objectively how do you make each activity more sustainable and you'll hear us hit on three elements of sustainability ecological social and economic and that's what we have to look at every activity that is forwarding wildlife conservation in those three pillars those three lenses whatever you want to look at it at this is a hard-hitting conversation in which Richard really lays out the reality of wildlife conservation. So it's funny how small this world is in that when we got connected and uh, we started thinking about, like, what do you do, mm. what I've done, research, education, and it seems like we were in the same place same time in Kruger. Yeah. Same time, twenty-two years ago. Gosh, we must be old buggers. There you go. And that uh, you feel eh? I'll tell you what. I I honestly think I know the 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 probably the place and the time that we interacted. And I didn't tell you this before we started the podcast, but there was a, and I'm sure they still do it today. There was a science like symposium held in Skikusa. yeah, Sun It was the first one. Network. It was the first one. And it was with the River Savannah's Boundaries program was involved, heavily involved, and everyone came together. I remember speaking in the auditorium. I was super nervous. It was like my first presentation ever about ecotones and their influence on um, sort of uh, it was a, a width um breath relationship down a flay and how that uh, changed with the the gradient of the landscape. So a steeper slope meant a smaller ecotone, a, you know, a, a gentler slope meant a larger ecotone anyway. And I remember Kevin Rogers saying, oh, you did pretty good. And that night, I think, and Louis Ulofia, the section ranger of Singuetsi was actually present. And I very distinctly remember him and I. Chopping through close to a bottle of Jamison's that evening together. <laughs> that sounds like Louis. Louis. <laughs> and uh, the stories he told me that night, I have seared into my brain. Oh. <laughs> would, you can imagine what Louis told me that night. Probably not fit for consumption on here. Uh. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, Well, I typically do a very good, poor job of introducing people, but this time I'm going to do a really good job. Uh, Richard Sauri, welcome to the Blood Origins Podcast. I'm excited about this conversation, specifically because I'm excited about hard-hitting conversations. And I know you're the kind of person that is not going to hold any punches and just deliver the truth. And that's what we like to talk about. We like to push the boundaries of, you know, what is the truth out there from a wildlife conservation perspective? And so, um, Richard Sauri, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Um, I've been in conservation my whole life. I've visited
2: the Kruger Park every single year, my 50 years. <coughs> I'm a professional conservationist for 25 years. Had great practical experience, um, a lot to do with anti-poaching, but also my passion is about what we would call resource use management. So. That would be about how we generate revenue and validate, justify protected areas, um, wildlife areas, game ranches, whatever you want to call them. Um, they de- vary in degrees of wildness, but that's sort of what we know them at as. Um, we do two main ways. It's the photographic safari industry, and I've worked in that for some of the best companies in Africa for a short while. I've done trails, um, so I'm a qualified field guide. Um, and then I've also been involved with um, managing impacts around what we would call commercial hunting, or if you want to call it trophy hunting, or whatever you want to call it, but revenue generation from hunting. So, are yeah, 25 odd years around there now, um, and it's my passion, and I'd say that's me in a nutshell.
1: <laughs> Richard, I would not think that uh, you would be a proponent of don't do anything. Do you think that? Let me ask this very, maybe a blunt, straight up question. And that's what the kind of questions we like on this podcast. Um, what about non consum like uh, ecotourism? Let's just call it non consumptive. And I don't, don't want to point the finger at ecotourism at all because they're, they're, they're very good. How about a place where nothing happens? Is wildlife going to be conserved in a place in which nothing happens? Well, there's no ecotourism, you... there's no hunting. Uh,
2: firstly, I want to stop you there because this, um, fallacy that something's non-consumptive um you you do nothing and you are consumptive okay so in the photographic industry the game viewing safari areas of africa if you're going there for photography game viewing whatever we just generally call them photographic safaris they are consumptive of water it's about 400 liters of water per person per day Um, so in most of africa that's drawn from boreholes or i think in the states you call them wells but that's about that. So you can do the sums. And I say per person per day. So at some of the luxury lodges, you've got three staff members to one guest. So you can do the sums. So a 60-bed lodge is pulling over a million liters of water a month. So they are consumptive. And then hunting, we know what that is. There's a there's a little bit of the water because there's fewer people. But then you're consuming an animal. And very important to that is sex, age, how many, all mm-hmm. of those things. So nothing going on. Um, you are consuming If you're not generating revenue, you're going to get what I like to call land use change. Um, And if you go to all the annals of conservation about why species X, Y, and Z, you can name them lions, whatever, you're going to find one common thing. Why is this endangered? Why is it threatened? And you can go through them all. You'll find one common thing. It says land use change. So I love to tease things apart and break it down to its most basic um, facts uh, of what I would call also, and this we also need to define what we would call best available knowledge. And there's a difference mm-hmm. between facts and best available knowledge. If you walk up to a jackalberry tree or an ebony and you see a big mark on the side and you can clearly see and it's been made by a tusk and it's pulled off, it means the elephant did that. That's a fact. And its tracks at the base of the tree. An elephant did that. That's a fact. When you say we um, advocate a stocking rate or this type of land management, holistic rangeland, which is now seems to be the best, that is the best available knowledge. And it may change. Because 20 years ago, when I studied rangeland science and all the rest of that. It was different. It's outdated. So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that's the thing. So nothing going on. You're still consuming. um, But you're going to get land use change because the people around it um, are are dependent on livelihoods to survive so there is no difference between a community member a game rancher a businessman in a city whatever each day every one of them are trying to put food in their own belly food on the table um hopefully a roof over their head a house Mm -hmm. um, send kids to school all of those challenges so that is very relevant so People so often think that you know, wildlife is, is, is charity-based and it's going to survive charity-based. Well, whatever you're going to do in life, make decisions, management decisions, whatever, you've got, to, you've got to define your context. It's critical. And context of all of this is 7.8 billion humans on the planet. So I give a talk on responsible resource use, and about a year or so ago, I said 7.7 billion humans, and some smarty in the audience put his hand up, and he said, sorry, 7.8. I said, okay, well, that now just shows you the, the, the severity of the problem. So wherever mm-hmm. you go, that land use better be of value to society. <clears throat> and now that's all society. It's not the upper echelon that can afford to be a member of a uh, – animal rights extremist NGO or a hunting association or anything like that. It's not that upper echelon. It's everyone. So if you think back to your days in in Africa and South Africa, what does that represent? So game reserves, um, game ranches. I I don't like the word game farms because to people from abroad, they hear farm and they think what it could be in the British meadows, and it's very different. A game farm – plump them down in a game farm they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between some of our wildest game farms and if I put them in the middle of Kruger National Park it's no different. Yeah. So I prefer the term conservancies or ranch farm don't like that. You know wildlife conservancies is I think what we should call them because they're misrepresented. So nothing going on means land use change because those people will soon see you know what um, we've been offered X from a mining uh, company you know let's go to coal mining so the land which is biodiversity which is trees plants birds animals whatever they decide to put a coal mine so so what i was saying is that land use change often goes to things that are very far removed from anything to do with conservation for conservation what what we're looking at is sustaining biodiversity that's kind of what it's about. and sustainable use is inherent to conservation, um, but sustainable use happens. the word sustainable is more important in the conservation context because you can't mm-hmm. help using it. You know you breathe air, you consume water, you need food, where do you source your food from? Uh, all these concepts which are very we 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 try and discuss, dispute, argue with complex um, issues. It's not complex. It's very simple. If someone says to me, you know, I'm defending being a carnival or, or vegan or whatever, so show me a photograph of your land use. So here's a good one. So today I had eggs for breakfast. So those eggs are battery laid. I can take a photograph of what that battery chicken farm looks like. Say I had a game stake today. I can show you a photograph of a totally wild area, and that's what that land use looks like. So it's all about where you choose and how you use your resources, so where you select them from. And that goes hand-in-hand hand down to wildlife management. So we've got to make these areas valuable to all, and valuable to Robbie could be an awesome sunset over the Shingwetsi River in the Kruger Park or a view over the Mara with a right. cold beer in his hand, but that to a hungry person outside the national park, that value
1: could be a pound of elephant meat. Um, Richard, there is a... simple as that. I want to make sure that we are not painting something that we are not, that, we, that we are not intending to paint right now. And it's something that I constantly talk about too, in that to me, when I view wildlife conservation, I think you would argue the same. Is that we essentially look into the toolbox that we have. The toolbox of wildlife management opportunities, wildlife conservation uh, mechanisms. There are a gradient of those tools. So you can pull out the hunting tool, and the hunting tool gradates from a place where it doesn't work to a place where it's the only tool that I can use. Same thing for ecotourism, same thing for. Um, a game management, game ranch type scenario. Same thing for, um, I'll even throw in the idea of the um, big NGO-backed protectionist type scenario. Would you agree with that assessment of wildlife conservation tool management?
2: Yeah, but those are the viable ones. So there's a lot, but economic sustainability around your model is critical. So you within those that you've mentioned, you can get in and tease them all apart because they've all got strengths and weaknesses, uh, and a very.
1: Well, let's tease them apart. Let's tease Mm -hmm. each one apart from a, from a eco, from an (laughs) environment. That's my stomach telling me my brain that, um, anyway, um, Let's tease them all apart from an economic sustainability perspective. Yeah. So
2: well, we that's just, just wherever
1: you want to start. We can't just leave it there. So the
2: the best form of management around what we call wicked problems or complex problems is mm-hmm. holistic re- management. Yeah. So humans are really good at simplistic solving of problems such as engineering, medical, those issues. Issues around social aspects and the environment are complex problems. They require holistic thinking. The basis of holistic thinking is to basically tease the issue apart from an ecological an economic and a social sustainability perspective and take those three. So ecologically, yeah, for instance, you would would look at um, photographic safaris. So it's pretty obvious. It's, this is quite interesting, I, I used to give talks just on the various, you know, having experience with with hunting and management around hunting, I'd give groups to foreigners from universities and it, and it varied in size from 20 to 30 and even up to 150 vets, student vets once. And I always would want, I started trying to understand my audience as to what was the experience of Africa. And I've done this for nearly 15 years. So I started saying, you want a safari of a lifetime? Where would you go in Africa? Um, and, oh, no, I started asking, them, where have you been in Africa? And then I started to see they all going to the same destination. So instead of, you know, loading the question, I asked, you want a safari of a lifetime? Where do you go? So more than 95%, say three destinations, it's the Serengeti system, the Kruger system, and the Okavango system. And then I bring up a map to show them where those little spots are on, on Africa. And there's a, quite mm-hmm. a nice map of the protected areas. And that's just protected areas. That's not privately owned like is in mm-hmm. South Africa or in the areas of Zim. And it just mm-hmm. shows you how small those are. And that's where people gravitate to. So photographic safaris from an economic perspective requires a sort of Let's just call it a mind-blowing experience. If um, if you go up to, say, the north of the Kruger in the Pufuri area, everyone knows the river, Ryan, the bush, the scenery. It's awesome. So they're all going to want to flock to the lodges and the camps around mm-hmm. Pufuri. But I say um, there's this little piece of biodiversity uh, 50Ks out the gate, Um, Why aren't you going there? Oh, no, 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 photographic fickle. I want to land at this airport. I want easy travel. I want to be able to buy some supplies while I'm there. So all the sort of developed areas of Africa are going to get economic protection through that model of the photographic safari. And I say, well, who's going to go and protect there? Yeah, I mean, you hear these outcries now about these large elephant that were hunted in Botswana. And you ask? Oh, I've to, been I've
1: been in the turmoil for the last three days no, because but, I mean, we, we, we posted about it, we podcasted about have it. Have you yeah. been there?
2: Have you been to those? I don't even know what it is, it's ng something that I have never been there, and um, I haven't an intention to. And I must be honest, and I don't think you have an you know. So who's going to keep that habitat wild and the wild mm-hmm. animals there with value? Because if you don't, and you you come to the rural areas of Africa, and I don't need to explain this to you, but to our listeners. And you go and witness the aftermath of a problem or damage-causing elephant that's been destroyed, and you watch two hundred villagers cut that apart. And you ask, "So when last did you have meat? Two months ago?" Now you think you you know meat is a very important aspect of survival in these areas. So people understanding that I could get thirty or I don't know what is the case of these elephants, probably more than 50,000 US dollars, and the community get the meat of the elephant, and the, the elephant, the, the money from it is theirs. I mean, that's a no brainer for that aspect because it's not an area that is competing from a photographic perspective.
1: And then, as we discussed earlier. The argument there, let me just, I'll just let's because get you it. pulled out that example. I didn't listen. The argument there is that NG13 is bordered by. NG14. NG14 is a non consumptive utilization block. There is a citizen owned ecotourism operation on the Kwando River in NG14. And where this elephant was shot is 40 kilometers away from that area. And so the assumptions across the board, because I don't know, neither do they, of the idea that this elephant could have visited that place, could have generated ecotourism dollars, um, had big migration you know, possibilities into the Delta. Um, that was That's one of the arguments that has been laid against not hunting that elephant. Okay, so here's, here's some others. And
2: I'm not going to get into what the value of the elephant is, but this is the thing. So I just look at the photographs, and any elephant with tusks that large is I won't say 50, but it's very close to 50 years of age um, and probably older. So it was a really interesting paper that was released a couple of years by Ian White and um, Anthony Hall Martin. And it documented all the jaws um, linked to the ivory recovered of valleys around Kruger. And it puts them all on a sliding scale so you can see age um, to tusk weight. Um, and the average of a 50 year old Kruger elephant is 93 pounds, round about. I just looked on the graph to extrapolate, round about. Um, so 100 pounder, which those were, is just a little bit more than average. If he's 50 years of age in, in Kruger context, and I'm going to assume the same for Botswana. So Kruger ellies today, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a keen follower of, of large tuskers, and that Kruger elephant today, most of the big tuskers in recent times looking like that have died 48 49 50 51 round about let's just say 50 years of age ballpark figure you go to the Latabe elephant hall and you're going to see elephants 55 plus we mm-hmm. don't see that very often these days and it's because cause of death is not starvation it's mostly killed by bull other bull so a bull mm-hmm. elephant is physically in his prime, let's say, around about 35 to 40, somewhere at that ballpark figure. Um, 50, when you're carrying the big ivory, physically out of his prime, um, he may breed, but he's essentially done with his breeding. Um, because to breed, he's got to go and follow a cow that's in estrus, and then he's got to, f- if there's other bullets in attendance, he's got to prove dominance. And those long tusks are no fighting weapon compared to short, sharp, stabbing tusks. So what you often find is, if you want to find big tuskers, don't go to the water holes in Kruger and those sort of populated areas around the heat of the day when the other bulls are there, because the big bulls are not in attendance. They often go early morning or late, but they're not there because they're scared of those other guys. So mm-hmm. those big tuskers, in well, not big tuskers, but those large tusked elephants in Botswana, about 50 years of age, probably got not long to go, not going to do any more breeding, um, essentially. Botswana's got a much greater density of elephant than Kruger, so I say, I'm going to assume that the same applies, um, yeah, for, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that that's what's happening there. Um, so, you know, what, he's not going to breed, his genes are in the system. You know, I often show two photographs of the same elephant. Um, you might have been to the Lataba Elephant Hall and seen that big tusk of yeah. mandleve So there's Mm -hmm. two fantastic photographs of him. One is with him, and you can clearly see that ear with that large notch in it, and he is 35 years of age there because the photo was taken in 72. The next photo of him is 92, a year before he died. I think he was 55 then, 56 when he died. So you can extrapolate back to the other photo. He was 35. Um, I'll I'll quickly share my screen so you can see – but it, it it's it's unbelievable, and to see the difference. So, you know, people are assuming, and you are, you know, you often ask. I will ask this question. You can see mm-hmm. that's him on the left there, and there he is on the right. Um, and you ask people which one should we hunt, and they say, no, don't hunt the big tusker, hunt that one. But they are assuming that they're the same age, but they're not. You know, and when you want to make good decisions around hunting. This is that graph I was telling you around. So you can see, there's the average. So if you're hunting on the average or below, then the best genetics are are not going to be removed before they get to 50. But if you want to see those elephants, you better let those elephants live to 55. So there's Mandleve from, you know, that's a sketch of him, but you can see that ear and you can see the ear there, you know? And that's the thing. So ecologically, when he's 35, that hunt is not sustainable because his genes are not um, passed on yet. But when he's 55 or 50, he's essentially done most of his breeding. And, and that's the thing that people are, are missing there. So what you do want is you want value to this photographic concession in the Chobi, But 100%. I'm sure they don't want a coal mine as their neighbor.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Even the word, I often say to people, what's the worst, worst, worst hunting you can think of that will turn everyone's stomach? Would you prefer that or a coal mine? And I have never heard the answer, no, we prefer the coal mine, because the coal mine is the depletion of all the habitat and the
1: animals. And the reason you're saying that is because, again… It's land use value. Something something has to happen on the land, right? Somebody is going to do something with Mm -hmm. the land,
2: right? Mm -hmm. So I would be very glad if I was the tourism operator's photographics next to this guy that we had a a nice, good buffer next to me. I would engage a lot with him to understand which elephant he's hunting. I feel that uh, an elephant, large Tastelis, if we understand their ranges, and when we do hunt them, we hunt them for very large sums. Ecologically, it's sustainable. We just then need to determine what is the large sun, and I was part of a discussion about 10, 15 years ago where we determined that a hundred pounder someone was willing to pay a, mil, a three million US dollars for. That's where we ended mm-hmm. up. Um, mm-hmm. So we're saying that would be an opening bid. So if you could give get that, and, and this is only going to happen when we're all sitting around the table and making the best decisions around our wildlife's value. So that if you got 3 million for an elephant like that, then you could say, right, we're gonna give the photographic guy X, we're gonna give Botswana and Parks X, and the hunting operator X, just say a million each for argument's sake, everyone would be happy. But then where do you spend it? So if it's beachfront cottages and fast cars, difficult to justify in this context, not that you know putting your kids through a good school wouldn't be a good option, but the majority should be spent back on the area communities, um, good conservation, Mm anti-poaching, advanced research. Then it gives Mm -hmm. this land use, what I would call land use wildlife, great value. Right. And then then it's surviving. So I don't want, even if I'm a ranger in the park, I I don't want anything that is not wildlife land use around me. I want bigger buffers if that is possible. I want good relations with my neighbors. We want to, I understand we're all in the same game. Every few years, they may need to hunt a line. There's a right line and a wrong line. and the same with the ellies. And I want to know where we're reinvesting it. So we're all making decisions together about the greater area. And then I've got this mm-hmm. great, great buffer around me. Poachers don't get through that. All these sort of things. So there's just so much positivity that comes out of it. Um, and this is based on the best facts we got. So mm-hmm. this is how we need to do it. So if you look – Botswana gets much maligned for their punting and the rest of it. But who are the best elephant conservationists in Africa? They are because they've got the most elephant and they give the most land. They dedicate the most land to elephant habitat and elephant existence. So you can't criticize them. But you then mm-hmm. if you're going to do that, you've got to give that land value. And this is how it comes. So not all areas are going to be great photographic areas. And the photographic guys operate well, um, you know, next to Kruger Park. There's the APNR reserves. They hunt and run photographic safaris, and it's well-managed so that someone on a photographic safari does not see the hunt take place um, when there's a decision made on a specific animal all are interested in it so that we have sustainability from a social perspective, an economic perspective, and an ecological perspective. And if you ask the right questions about any hunts, you get the right answers. And I'm not pro-hunting. But I'm not anti-hunting and I'm not pro-photographic and not anti. I'm pro what I would call responsible resource use. And that's sustainability right. from those three perspectives. And, you know, sometimes hunting is the best land use there. And sometimes it's photographic. You know, photographic pre- generates a lot of jobs, probably more jobs in some correct right. depending on the operation. Um and hunting requires less people to generate the money. So what do you do when you go through like what the world's been through in the last few years of COVID? Where are mm-hmm. all those photographic guests? So say I need 30 guests photographic to generate $100,000. US How many would I need hunting? One. Right. Or so two. Now, what's the chance of me get, getting 30 guests in COVID times across here? And what's the chance of me getting two? I mean, it's a no-brainer. So sometimes Mm -hmm. you've got to adapt and you've got to be flexible to say, I want the land to stay under land use wildlife. And for the next two years, I'm going to be hunting here. And when that closes, I'm going back to my photographic. And you know what? Because I'm hunting, I'm able to to not dismiss and retrench people. I can keep them on at a retainer. So socially, people do better. The environment doesn't suffer because we've got the anti-poaching carrying on because we've got the revenue. And... Most cases, those animals were going to die anyway, killed by each other. But I would, you know, I so Richard, say people have lost touch with the environment. That's why we are yeah. irrational in our in our understandings.
1: Should we let me let me back up a little bit and maybe let's start from the ground up. What's the number one thing we should be worried about? Let's take ecotourism out of the picture. Let's take hunting change. out of the picture. No po- overpopulation. Land use
2: change. Overpopulation. No, over- can 't do much about that, can't they're... do
1: much about that right we can't do it the the, the the argument that keeps being thrown in our face is like stop breeding people, yeah, like okay it, that's we that's a can deal with that yeah can't deal with that, so
2: then what's the next thing we can deal with? Prevent land use land change. Used. keep wildlife the land use wildlife valuable, but obviously we don't compromise on sustainability, and that mm-hmm. that's there's the facts we've spoken about them in just go through those principles and you end up with, with, with good answers and good outcomes. But look at all the best areas. Look, if you ask society today, where is the largest wild sable herd in Africa found? Most people don't have a clue. I yeah.
1: Think it's Yeah,
2: it's Mozambique. Yeah. Mozambique. Zambezi Delta. 30, 20 odd years ago, when you first went there, there were a handful of sable. And just through doing anti-poaching and building up the resources for the first many years, he's now able to hunt there. And the hunting pays for the conservation. The hunting keeps the hungry people from poaching. Best land use. No one's going there on a photographic safari,
0: you know?
1: So, Richard, maybe this is a, um, something that we constantly are striving to be able to do a better job at which is there seems to be, obviously, because hunting kills animals, there's always that moniker, right? There's something you'll never be able to shake it. But what are we doing wrong then? What, from a hunting perspective, are we doing wrong in terms of explaining to people the three legs of the stool, which is the environmental sustainability, the economic sustainability, and the social sustainability? Is it... Like let's just use this elephant again as the example. You know, maybe there shouldn't ever have been a picture put out there of the of the elephant down with the hunters. That seems to get us in a in a, in a scolding pot of water every single time. Robbie, Is that trophy shot?
2: I'm, I'm sure you find certain literature offensive. Let's say if someone, let's say pornography, if you go and scratch for it and you find it, why would you should you complain about it? So if you want to find the photograph of the elephant, you don't want to see it. Why were you trying to find it? You know, these are not public domains. This is Robbie's Facebook page or somewhere. Don't scratch for it. You know, the thing is, not, not everyone wants to be a hunter or can see themselves hunting. Your mother, my mother, they don't see themselves hunting. But sure. humans are very keen to be judgmental on stuff they don't see themselves doing. So rather than asking good questions about the land use and trying to fully understand it, they just don't see themselves hunting, so they cancel it. But it's quite ironic because a hundred years ago, the hunter was the hero in the village. He determined, you know, his wife was fed, his kids were fed, and Mm -hmm. his were the physically fit people. Mm -hmm. He was a hero, now he's a villain. What's changed? We've lost touch with our environment. How many mm-hmm. people can tell you where the silver side comes from on an animal and yet they eat it <laughs> once a week and there's this perception that you know choosing to be a vegan is um not resulting in the deaths of things so then i'll ask you the following so if you eat oranges which would be considered vegan food how is an orange grown well this is it and you are complicit in all of this so you want to grow oranges? First, you clear the game on the land. Then you clear the natural habitat. So you're responsible for wildlife holocaust and the habitat holocaust there. Then you plough it up. And ploughing is, is deemed one of those activities that generates the most um, release of carbon into the atmosphere. There's a great film called Kiss the Ground. Go and watch that, and it'll show you all of that. But, so now you plough. Then you plant your orange trees and the rest of it. Now you get a visit from a vervet monkey or a dacre or whatever. The citrus farmer shoots them. That's what happens. Then your Mm -hmm. trees get big enough that the insects start wanting to eat them. So what happens? We put pesticides on them. So that's another insect holocaust. And we carry on shooting monkeys. And then one day we've got a ripe orange and the farmer picks it and you eat it. And you're assuming nothing's died. Well, I'm... Mm -hmm someone said to me the other day, by proxy, we are all hunters, farmers, and miners. And uh, he's right. He's right. He was farmers and miners by proxy. So I don't want to do the killing. I don't want to do that. I'm going to buy my meat from a supermarket, which is 99% of people. It's more actually if you want to make good decisions about what food you eat from your own health perspective and also from an environmental perspective. It's not what you're eating. It's where you're sourcing it from. And if you're not sure of that, the listener's not sure, go and do the research. Because this whole debate, discussion requires rational thinking. And rational is, is, is clear stuff that can be defended by evidence. So you, you, you want to get the best rational thinking out of yourself. Go and find the best available knowledge and facts. And, and you're going to come up with these answers yourself. It, it, uh, someone who has to kill yourself as a hunter to feed yourself, mm-hmm. myself, I—that that is the food I choose, because I know what the land use looks like, I know how the animal lived, I know how it died, and I know what I'm giving value to. So the meat I eat is, is hunted wildlife, in wildlife areas that are not photographic areas, and I choose them specifically that they're not dual, you know, purpose, because I want to give that land use value, and I want it to stay that way. But... I'm I'm involved in what, where my food comes from. But if I didn't want to, and many people are, and I'm not criticizing, sure. that, but then just say, you know what, I'm going to ask Robbie to go and do it to me because I know he does it in a responsible manner, rather than saying, ah, that's awful. Because end result is you are devaluing wildlife's ability to compete as a land use on the land. And that is the African yeah. model. And we keep saying it like stuck records all around Africa, people in the know. Let's have the debates. Let's do it out there. You know, let's do it up front. We, we all actually want one thing. We want to see wildlife thrive. We're just passionate about wildlife. And that's me. Um, I'm passionate about wildlife. I'm a bird watcher. I um, love trees, everything. But to me, it's all the same. And when I do go and hunt, I try and do it as respectfully and responsibly as
1: possible. Do you think that's our downfall, Richard? If you have to take a step back, you you said earlier, I'm not pro hunting. I'm not anti-hunting. I'm not pro ecotourism, not anti ecotourism. I'm pro resource use. I'm pro resource utilization in a responsible, sustainable manner. So if you had to take that step back and look from the outside in to hunting as an industry, where are we failing? If I must be honest. I don't think necessarily hunting
2: is an industry. Let's call it the wildlife industry. 20 years ago is, I think, when we started failing. You know, we all get out there every day, and we work eight hours. We're tired. We come home. We eat. We go to sleep. We get up the next day. We do it. We're not communicating in the meantime. We've now entered the age of communication where it's very easy. So an NGO can spend 99% of its time doing the communication, and they become the trusted. And the the conservation authorities and the wildlife authorities and the, the the real wildlife people, I'm not calling you a hunter, you can be a hunter in that, but the real wildlife authorities are not getting heard because they're not speaking. So mm-hmm. we've got to get out and we've got to change that. we've We've got to understand the principles of resource use. so when when you go to a photographic lodge, you you ask the right questions. and we've got a, some great hunting protocols in the in the greater Kruger area. We've got great what we would call lodge operations protocols, and they're the same. It's just a dovetail of each other, and it's the same mm-hmm. principles. It goes about what resources you use, your social principles, your economic. Where does the money go, and all of that. So judge them on the same slate, but we need to be aware of all of them. So when I walk into a lodge, you know, and I want or I, before I even walk in there, I don't want to choose which lodge should I go to you want to you want to support the land use that is supporting the society around there and real conservation, so just start asking the right questions and I think when it comes to the hunting and you see outcries like this recent one, ask the right questions and you never see the right questions. Bless the journalists, you never see the right questions they don't know the mm-hmm. right questions if they want help we'll tell them you know and those are the simple things: How old was it? Where was it did you Take the bread and butter of the photographic lodge. You know, um, what are you doing with the money? All these things. We've spoken about it for the last half an hour now.
1: But, yeah, yeah.
2: But that's it. But the bottom line is land use wildlife is competing with other land uses. And if for we presumably. value it, we will lose it. And we have, I think we've turned the corner in South Africa. It was a period where we were just growing in, in land under wildlife. It's estimated we got about 19, some say 17 to 19 million hectares of land under wildlife in South Africa, and that would include the park, which is 2 million. That's how much land we've got under wildlife because it was extremely valuable. But if we are reducing the means by which a person can earn a living and do the conservation and the wildlife, they're going to change. and They're going to go back to goats and sheep and possibly something else that they're not going to get hammered on social media doing and that's senseless so let's keep giving wildlife value let's get in the discussions about how we give it value Um, but the only real two that generate the revenue are those that sell the experience the photographic experience and the hunting experience and yeah that's it for me in a nutshell but it's not that complicated we're thinking way past what's important no you're right
1: And I think you nailed it on the head. And that's one of the things that, you know, we're striving to do in blood origins is the whole communications piece. So I'll use this elephant again, as an example, typically the hunting community would enter into a closet and say, we don't want to talk about it. Mm. We're done versus let's get the facts out there. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a dialogue about it. Let's talk to the people in the know about it. Mm. Um, I think that's important, naturally, that comes with issues right right now in our media age, but it comes with issues because we don't communicate. We yeah. haven't communicated, we don't tend to like to communicate um things like you know what you do every single day on the ground, or lots of other let me just i won't use you as an example lots of people that are in the resource utilization game. Doing good things for the economic sustainability, the social responsibility, and the ecological sustainability happen every single day. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll look to hunting. It happens every single day. But nobody's talking about it mm. because that's just stock standards, It's what we do every day. Yeah. We, we, we're doing habitat management. We're, meet, we're doing meat drops. We're taking the local tracker's wife to the clinic an hour away because she, she needs medical help. But nobody documents that kind of stuff because why would you? Why do you need to? That should happen. But today you do need to. Yeah, we have to. But it's just about Mm -hmm. getting the true story
2: out there. Because as wildlife lovers, and you come from that background, scientific, wildlife, we're wildlife guys. We don't have a problem Mm -hmm. with
1: hunting as long as it's done properly. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. As long as it's done properly. I couldn't say that any better. And ask the tough questions. We have to be able to answer the tough questions. Did you do it properly? Well, we can,
2: was that appropriate? We can to take? define that, those categories, and we do a lot of the time. And it's just about justification. Mm-hmm. But it, communication is long overdue, and we, we just got to do it. So we got to keep speaking when asked to answer the questions. There's nothing to hide. And if, the, if someone doesn't agree, let's have a debate about it, let's bring the facts to the table.
1: Yeah, hundred well, percent. we don't want to see wildlife go. 100%. So exactly. we need to stop. You. We don't mm-hmm. want to see wildlife go. So let's let's utilize all the tools in the toolbox, mm-hmm. all of which need to be looked at exactly responsibly.
2: And don't dictate to the landowner. The landowner will choose the one that works best in that area naturally. Simple. Mm-hmm. People have done it in South Africa when from the emergence of of, of game ranching and you know conservancies say, 30 years ago when it really took off till now. Well, not now, let's say 10, 15 years ago. And then things started to tighten up. And that shouldn't happen. Yeah,
1: 100 percent, 100 percent. Well, Richard, it's been amazing. Um, Yeah, I I guess, you know, we could talk for hours Mm. Um, and uh, maybe what I will do in the future. I don't know. We'll, we'll see maybe in the future when a controversy comes up like this elephant, maybe it's something that we can hash out. Yeah, let's I know, unpack you know, it. Obviously the good, and the just bad. unpack it and uh, a good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And because I think people want to have a, yeah, you know, and we try to stay again. We're, yes. We want to convey the truth about hunting from blood origins perspective. Um, The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Because we're not a panacea. We're not a silver bullet. We are, again, a tool that, is, that works very, very, very well mm. in a lot of places. But And at the end of the day, we all want wildlife. We want better wildlife. We want healthier wildlife. We want sustainable wildlife. And so we have to be stewards of that wildlife and make sure that it's being done correctly. Exactly. Get up every day and fight for that.
2: Exactly. It's actually the biggest exactly. threat to wildlife is the devaluation of it. Not poaching, not other stuff. Just the devaluation of it as a viable land use.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. Good. Richard, thank you, my man. Pleasure, Robbie. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.